talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Content production, Will Erskine. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. The Toronto Maple Leafs are playing golf today. Ha-ha. Unfortunately, their foursome may contain a Boston Bruin or two. Here's uh-huh. Thompson! I know, I know. Radley said so. Uh, sorry, Lee fans. <laughs> I know, I, uh... I've been watching my father throw his slipper at the uh, TV for a hundred years, and uh, I threw mine in his honor t- this weekend. Good afternoon. I'm Scott Thompson. It's 900 CHML, and on the board is Will Weber in the newsroom. Diane and Dave, also a jam-packed show, as you can imagine, especially with it being debate night tonight. And I know you're all excited about that, aren't you? Huh? Crickets, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, the debate is tonight, the Ontario debate tonight at 6.30, and uh, it'll be fascinating to see, although many uh, people, I'm not sure, are really enthused about this election because, um, well, we're just trying to get on with life, uh, but unfortunately, the calendar says it's time, and we are where we are, and June 2nd's the big date, so we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. Also, uh, tragedy over the weekend in Buffalo, oh my God, uh and and just a horrific shooting down there. We're going to talk about that, get you an update, and talk to uh, Buffalo Media and what is going on uh, just south of the border for us. And you know, how many of us are down there at, 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 on any given weekend, whether it's for a sporting event, for shopping, what have you. Uh, so terrible news uh, for our friends south of the border, and our hearts and, and thoughts go out with them today. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, in the situation regarding Russia and Ukraine, uh, NATO, uh, Finland, Sweden, that looks like uh, everybody's jumping on board that wagon. And uh, also, McDonald's announcing it's pulling out of Russia. Think about that. Um, they were like one of the first restaurants in into Moscow, I think, way back when, uh, many years ago, but now doing a about face uh, for obvious reasons. And once again, gas prices, gas prices, gas prices continue to uh, to be the issue. Uh, driving around this weekend, I saw anywhere from a, a buck ninety three uh, to, and Will was talking like two oh eight on the mountain. So it's it's just bizarre where we are, and it's starting to affect what people are doing and where they're where they're going and how how they get there and we're all looking forward after you know being cooped up for two years to getting out and traveling whether it's road trips or just to see friends or such and uh man now we can't afford to and everything's going up as a result of that anything that's um you know comes along a supply chain that's for sure so uh it is what it is and with the debate tonight it's going to be fascinating to see if that is an, an issue although uh, again, uh, at the provincial level, uh, I'm not sure how much more taxes we could take off of this. And does you know, <laughs> and it's like a drop in the bucket when it's going up several times a week, several cents a liter each time. Uh, but we're going to play you some clips from uh, from this morning from Good Morning uh, Hamilton and Colin DeMello, uh, our Global News Queens Park uh, bureau chief, and uh, and talking about the debate coming up tonight. And you know, and and you know, is there a lot of interest in this election? coming up 
in June. Uh, Is it captured people's attention? Here's what Colin DeMello had to say. Even those political operatives who you talk to who are out there talking to people, a lot of people are unaware that there's a political campaign or, or an election campaign going on. And some who are aware don't really seem to be that, you know, plugged into it or, um, you know, paying attention to every kind of little detail day by day. Uh, there are some certainly who are um, watching and paying attention because for them, this is an important election campaign, but it really does seem to be a bit of a sleeper election campaign so far. And, and in terms of the numbers, I mean, we have seen some of Stephen Del Duca's announcements beginning to resonate with people. His personal numbers and the party's numbers have been pushing up, but they're not pushing up to a point where they might be able to dominate the election or even knock the progressive conservatives off of their uh, front runner stance right now. So it, it really is shaping up to be you know, evening out to where we were before the election campaign. Uh, it seems like the the real battle is between uh, second and third at, at this point. And can Andrew Horvath hang on to uh, the official opposition uh, status? Uh, here's what Colin DeMello had to say on affordability being an issue. Cost of living has to be the number one issue. Ipsos had done a poll coming into the election asking people about their top issues. And while the number one and number two issues were health care and COVID-19, you know, number three to five and beyond were about various things related to affordability, whether it's the cost of gasoline, the cost of um, homes in this province, the availability of uh, homes in this province, rental, etc., uh, etc. Et on and on it goes because affordability obviously is one of those topics that really impacts us on a day-to-day level, right? You can feel, you can touch, you know uh, things are getting more expensive in this province. All of the parties have been making a lot of pitches when it comes to affordability, but no one so far has really come out as the dominant um you know, crusader for cutting costs down uh, for the average uh, person in the province. And, and even when you talk about things like building homes and adding to the supply of housing to therefore bring down the price of housing, a lot of the plans are 10 year plans. So they're not going to impact you or impact the price of housing today. They will eventually slowly bring that uh, those those numbers down. All right, that's uh, our Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, Colin DeMello, talking about uh, affordability being, and and obviously housing being uh, the top issues. Uh, And as Colin uh, rightly said, uh, it's going to take a while for us to build our way out of this. The Home Builders Association says we need 1 million homes over the next 10 years. And, you know, again, uh, that's over the next 10 years. We should have been doing this 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago. Uh, we're, we're playing really infrastructure uh, catch up at this point. We have an infrastructure deficit uh, across this country for some reason. And hopefully uh, moving forward, we'll, we'll, we'll use these numbers to, to think if, if, we need, if we need immigration to, to be at the numbers that it is, and, and the housing association saying we need one million homes over uh, 10 years. I mean, we need some planning to be done and we need it done now. It's that time of the year and we certainly have heard the lawnmowers mowing around uh, neighborhoods as uh, obviously uh, spring is here and, and things are starting to grow. Uh, and, and maybe you can leave them for the month of May. 
Uh, be only another two weeks. How high would the lawn be? Uh, no mow May is your chance to put the mower away, kick back, and just uh, watch the grass gr- uh, grow. Uh, this was a movement started in the United Kingdom. Is it gaining traction in Canada? And basically, the whole idea here is to let your uh, your lawn do its thing for the first month to allow things to pollinate and nature to start. To talk more, uh, talk more about all of this, Alex Sear is with us, writer and journalist with work appearing in the Globe and Mail, The Walrus, Toronto Life, and The Star, and he is with us now. Alex, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate the nod to old Weird Al Yankovic a couple uh, minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? Uh, I'll pass that along to Will Weber behind the board uh, uh, for you. I had nothing to do with it. And and sometimes that works well. So give us a, a bit of backstory here, Alex. What, what, what's all this about? How did it get going? Yeah, well, like you said, a couple of years ago, it originated in the UK. And the whole idea is just that, to leave the mowers inside, help save the environment for you know, the gas that you would expense with your lawnmower, but more so it's to give access to food for pollinators. Pollinators being a bunch of types of bees. I learned there's more than 4,000 different types of bees in North America. So a ton of wildlife, but also butterflies and beetles. They tend to feed on plants and flowers that tend to grow earlier in the year. And if we mow every week or two weeks, we actually cut a lot of those flowers. So it's to, uh, to let them feed as the flowers are growing, but also as these pollinators are growing early on in the year. So this started in the UK, and who who else recognizes this, or where's the movement uh, gaining steam? Around here, it's particularly on the east coast of Canada. Truro, Nova Scotia, Moncton, New Brunswick, Fredericton, New Brunswick have all put in place some community initiatives to uh, get the city and also its residents to stop mowing their lawn for the month, and I think also a few communities out of Quebec. So... Um, East Coast more so, Ontario is picking it up, but uh, so far the UK really has its greatest numbers. Does that surprise you? Um, not particularly. I mean, I think it's a pretty easy movement to get behind, right? Essentially, you ask people to do nothing. So uh, as soon as it <laughs> goes viral on Twitter, I think it's pretty easy to, to, to get behind and choose not to mow for the month of May. I know my dad's <laughs> probably going to be happy. And um, yeah, probably uh, my son too. Uh, when you when you think about it, and and well, how much of an impact does this make? Does it would it make that much of a difference if if everybody stopped doing that for the month of May, in any given province? Yeah, well, it depends. There there are studies that show that uh, not mowing every week, but instead every two weeks, can mm-hmm. support a whole lot more pollinators. There was a study out of Massachusetts that showed that. So I guess you can see a bit of a difference. But interestingly enough, uh, some nature uh, experts are conservancy people, notably the Nature Conservancy of Canada. They're not really getting behind the movement all that much or essentially saying that it's not enough and that perhaps it's distracting from better solutions. And the reason for that is if you don't mow your lawn, you'd see this, like try this at home the flowers that'll sprout up are dandelions, right? Pretty mm-hmm. much everywhere in Canada, yeah, the lawn's going to exactly. with dandelions. Yep. And funny enough, the um, the pollinators from around here, they're very specific in how they evolve and what they feed on. And the bees from around here haven't evolved to feed only on dandelions, but more so on local flora and different types of plants. Hmm. And so they suggest that the, the nature conservancy, that is, they suggest that the best thing to do would actually, you know, whether or not you mow your lawn would be to plant flowers 
And so, mm-hmm. because it's kind of better food, more nutritious for these pollinators. So essentially, perhaps it's not enough just to not mow your lawn, but also not mowing your lawn is a good start if you want to help out these bees. So, uh, and my next question was, are we mowing that much to make, you know, a difference? I was driving around this weekend, man, there's, if you go out of town, there's lots of green, there's lots of green. Now there's lots of lawns in a, in any urban setting, I guess. in in if you, if, you know, all of the people stopped mowing their lawn within a, in a city, you'd certainly notice it in some form. But again, is that, is that, is it, it's, is it a distraction? Should we be doing something more like plant? I mean, you know, we're hearing a lot about plant trees plant trees but we don't really hear people say plant flowers yeah and you know that's another campaign that perhaps we can get behind the reason we plant so many trees i think is because we've been talking about it for a while so maybe that's something that we need to advocate for a little more um i'll say canada is in an interesting situation because it's such a large country and most people live in the urban area so i'm guessing that there are a lot and i'm not sure about this but i'm guessing there's a lot of lawns that are left unattended because Mm. especially you know northern ontario the big big pastures with not so many people living there. So, uh, yeah, I'm guessing there's probably a ton more that we can do outside of our cities, which are, you know, pretty, uh, small, uh, size compared to the rest of our country. Yeah. Good point. Uh, Alex here with us, writer, journalist, uh, has appeared in Globe and Mail, the Walrus, Toronto Life and, uh, Toronto Star talking about no mo may. Alex, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Alyssa Freeman is with us, PR pop culture expert, and here now. Alyssa, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thank you for having me, Scott. Are you really excited about the debate tonight? No, but <laughs> what, I, what I am excited, what I'd like to see, Scott, quite honestly, is the stopping of the sniping and this and debates have also turned into and you probably would agree with me on this that they've turned in less about substantive issues and more about who's going to get the meme soundbite who's going Hmm. to get that one pull quote that will resonate for the rest of the debate and the the follow-up of the debate and also make the headlines and that's what i feel these debates have evolved devolved into yes it makes for great theater but really can't we do this with some sense of decorum without acting like we're still in high school and we're still dealing with bullies and really get down to the brass tacks? Because with the Conservative Party, and we've mentioned this before, Scott, they haven't yet defined themselves. And are they defining themselves behind a Polyev? Are they defining themselves behind um, uh, behind a Charest? And I think it's just serving to still confuse the electorate. Uh, again, that's, you know, uh, that, that's the feds looking for a, a new conservative leader. Provincial debate is tonight. Um, many have said the federal party should take a lesson off of Doug Ford on, on, on what perhaps the next generation of the federal conservative parties, uh, should, should be. But w- what are your thoughts on, on, for example, ma- people are making a lot of hay that, uh, Doug Ford's going to have notes with him tonight when he's doing his debate along with, uh, Stephen Del Duca and, uh, and, and, uh, Andrea Horvath. Uh, is, is that a big deal? Yeah, that's a really big deal. And I think that, you know, because I'm, I'm thinking, is that all we got here? Is it, oh my God, Doug yeah, Ford's using notes. I think notes. that every time you show up with notes and after you've been premier for quite a while, especially during a pandemic, I mean, what kind of notes do you actually need except for those talking points that you have to rem- remind yourself to hit on? 
But with practice, you really should know those talking points. So here we have the leader who wants to continue to be a leader of this province showing up with cheat notes. I mean, I've often seen uh, political candidates at a debate take down notes so they can remind themselves of points that they want to bring up perhaps in another answer. But I've never seen anybody, anybody in all the debates that I've ever watched actually read off of cheat notes. And well, we haven't seen, we, we really don't know what he's doing yet because we haven't really seen it yet. So I know, um, but should he do that, Scott, it would really not be. A I don't, I, I don't know. I, I think this just speaks to uh, the lead that he has is that, that this is really all that we can come up with. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. It, it, how do you think the electorate feels post COVID-19 in a election? How do you think the voters are feeling now? You know what? I think that they're feeling a lot different now that they some feel that COVID is behind us. It isn't, but that COVID is behind us and how they would have voted, let's say, eight months ago to today. And even just water cooler talk, a lot of people are saying, well, you know what? I still think Doug can do it. In, in spite of everything, in spite of the missteps. But I mean, name me a politician that hasn't had mis- missteps, Scott. So, you know, based on that, and the way that they've been portraying Stephen Del Duca has been extremely, like their advertising has been very effective, mm. I have to say. And especially with a lot of the close-ups of his face. And I hate to say this, but they're trying to sort of turn him into a, a caricature unto himself. So I, I think that it'll be interesting to see. If Much they, like Doug Ford. <laughs> well, you know, it, it'd be interesting to see if they reinforce certain stereotypes. It'll be interesting because Andrea Horvath, at least in her campaign commercials, has been trying to come up the, the middle by saying you're just getting the same old, same old. And it's the same old ping pong game and everybody's dropping the ball. So it'll be interesting to see how she does. She has that narrative. Andrea Horvath is a very, very capable debater. And I think that she, um, a lot of uh, people like Andrea Horvath and say that they like her. I don't think that they go the extra mile to actually vote for her. But it'll be interesting to see how they all position themselves against one another. And once again, I hope that this is, a, this is on less on sniping, less on sound bites, and more on substantive topics. Um, do you think that at this point, people uh, in post-pandemic, people are tired of... of um of the status quo people are tired of uh you know fake it till you make it i think we've talked about that before and you know andrea horvath you know it seems to to make gains obviously when the liberals fumble she's been there a while and and has not you know managed to 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 take it beyond where she is i think with stephen del duca a lot are are drawing comparisons to kathleen when he was her economic development minister as well as transportation which are the two key issues right now when we're talking about housing affordability and and that sort of thing so um you know i i think that that you know the other two are selling the same old same old lots of talk and lots of fluff but nobody can't see anything and i think you know even with uh ford's slogan which is um get it done uh, you know, I, I think people are just tired of blah, 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 and nothing. I mean, that's how we got into the housing situation. Um, you know, lots of people talking, but nobody really doing anything. And I, I think I'm, I'm seeing, I'm feeling the pendulum swing back. People are, people are tired of talk. They want to see results. Are they tired or are they just tired, Scott? And I think that 
some people some people may be hesitant to change because of all the the drama that we've been through in the past two and a half years and i think that what a lot of the electric is let electorate has seen is that listen it's tough to govern during a pandemic i'm not giving excuses to anybody here but yeah. the reality is is that it is tough to govern during a pandemic and listen i've been very critical of the ford government and some of the missteps that they made during the pandemic but i think that ontarians are overall tired and i don't know how willing to disagree with you here i don't know how willing they are to change the status quo i really don't um yeah yeah you're saying they the, there's no energy to to change that's, government that's exactly is what, you're saying. what i'm saying yeah yeah that's exactly what i'm saying and unless something sort of like really becomes blockbuster that is a differentiating point during this debate and you and i know that sometimes those can be far and few between because it is the same old same old maybe that's what people are looking for right now let's just get on with it let's get back to maybe why we put you in office in first place and i'm not willing to create a change just for change sake changes sake at this very moment that's kind of what i'm seeing do you think that you'll see any major knockouts today? Do you think this is going to be a fight for second and third? Right now, I'm going to say I think it's a fight for second and third. I don't think that Del Duca has broken through like they thought he would. I think that perhaps the Liberals thought it could be anybody and will just beat Doug Ford. And that may have been a, a miscalculation. He does not, for me, have that charismatic media presence. He just does not. Um, the Conservatives have been very, right now, uh, relentless in painting him with the Kathleen Wynne uh, brush. And yeah. I think that there's enough people in this province that remember those 15 years and don't want to relive them again. So it would have to be, if I was to see a knockout punch, it would absolutely have to be from either the Liberals or the NDP. And... I don't know if that's there yet. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. Debate tonight uh, for the provincial leaders, 630. You can uh, listen to it right here on CHML. As always, Alyssa, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The Bulldogs are uh, heading to the Eastern Conference Final. And uh, you know, forget forget the Leafs. Really, at the end of the day, this is where your entertainment uh, dollars should be spent. The Bulldogs heading to the Eastern Conference Finals, and uh, as a result of uh, beating Mississauga on Friday night, let's bring in Reed Duthie, play-by-play announcer, Hamilton Bulldogs, and with us now, Reed. Thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Always a pleasure, Scott. I was uh, mourning my Bruins on the weekend, but uh, we're back to it now. That's all in the past. Well, you know, it's funny. That's like uh, life in our house because there's Leaf fans and then there's Boston Bruin fans. So uh, obviously uh, trashing the Leafs, but then it looks like uh, Boston Bruins are in the foursome with the uh, uh, first golf game of the season for the Leafs, too. So what do you do? Let's move on to the Bulldogs. Uh, Obviously, uh, they're continuing to entertain and show no signs of slowing down, do they? No, they really don't, Scott. This has really been a, a crazy run. And what you what we saw in game four was the first sense of real um, of a tough spot that the Bulldogs were in, some adversity in their face. I know they were down two early in the game against the Peterborough mm. Peets in a 1-8. But when you give up the first goal to a team like Mississauga and then give up a 2-1 goal, in the first period, that's a team that can shut you right down. You know those games aren't going to be a track meet. The Bulldogs just kept grinding and grinding 
and you saw them wear down the steelheads to the point where they tie the game. And Arbor Jacki has that beauty in overtime to win the series. It just feels like they have an answer every time somebody puts a roadblock up in their face. They've got another way around it, and that is really cool to see. Man, when you're seeing back-to-back playoff sweeps, too, I mean, is this the new norm for them? I don't know if it's the new norm, but I'm sure the players would love to get used to that, right? They've never had one in franchise history until the first round against Peterborough. Now they got two in a row and eight wins in a row. I believe it's 18 going back to the regular season. So I think they they would like to make it the new norm. I don't know that North Bay is going to let them do that, but Mm. we shall see. All right, so tell us what happens next. So the Bulldogs advance on to the Eastern Conference Final, the Bobby Orr Trophy on the line. It's the second time the Bulldogs have ever been to this round of the playoffs. Of course, the first in 2018, and their opponents are from North Bay, one of the most explosive first lines in the league, led by Brandon Coe. Uh, this one, Scott, is going to be very intriguing. Arbor Jacki and Colton Kammer up against the Coe line for North Bay. you got to think that that is the big battleground where this series starts at, and then it comes down to the Bulldogs' depth. McTavish Morrison... Hopefully, Meshock ready down the middle. That's really tough to contend with. The Bulldogs deep at every position. Can North Bay find an answer where Peterborough and Mississauga haven't to what the Bulldogs can bring with three and four lines? I think that this is going to be another really good test. It's going to be something that the Bulldogs will need to pass to get through to the OHL finals, and I think they'll learn a lot about themselves in this series. So from what I'm hearing, power line for North Bay, but a bit more depth as far as the Bulldogs. I think that's what we're looking at, Scott. I think that that big line for North Bay is extremely talented. They got a couple of pieces away from that first line. They did do some work at the trade deadline to lengthen out their lineup a bit, but when you can line up Logan Morrison, a 100-point scorer who's been in the top of the playoff scoring, Mason McTavish, who I mean, we all know the story on Mason McTavish, and Yanni Mishok, another second-round pick in the NHL, has three centers, and then Lawson Shirk bumps down as a four. Lawson Shirk's not a fourth-line center. So that, that really creates that element of danger somewhere in the game, especially when it's in Hamilton with the Bulldogs having last change. Jay McKee has been able to find mismatches, and that has been the biggest key is – there's just not many teams that have the kind of defense needed to be able to shut down all three of those lines. It creates a lot of stress points, and the Bulldogs have been really good at twisting those stress points so far. And what was North Bay's season like this year? Up and down. They started pretty good. They, they hit a little bit of a bump in the road as Mississauga sort of took off in the Central Division, but then Mississauga ran into some hard points uh, down the stretch in North Bay reeled them in they came into the playoffs hot they ran through the ottawa 67s although ottawa made a couple of the games close uh kingston i think everybody thought that series was going to go longer than five games so north bay put them in the rearview mirror in impressive fashion i think the only thing for north bay is in putting kingston in the rearview mirror they gave up a lot of goals hmm. so the bulldogs will certainly have their eyes on that and what they can do to make things a little bit harder on their defense and goaltending All right, when's the next game? When's the first game of this series? Game one. It is Friday night, May the 20th. Tickets, Ticketmaster.ca, HamiltonBulldogs.com. Game two, Sunday, May the 22nd. I've never called a game on my birthday before, so this is going to be a whole lot of fun. (laughs) And then uh, it'll go to North Bay for next week. 
All right, there you have it. Reed Duffy, play-by-play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs as they continue on heading to the Eastern Conference Final against North Bay, and it all starts on Friday, May 20th. Reed, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Good luck. Thank you very much, Scott. Always a pleasure to be with you. People are still trying to come to terms with what has happened in Buffalo, New York over the weekend. Uh, and um, allegedly a man who traveled a long distance uh, came into a grocery store and just started shooting. And a lot of elderly people as well. And just a uh, an incredibly tragic and it seems targeted event, uh, racially motivated. Right now, there is a update going on with uh, officials in Buffalo. Let's bring in Christopher Cruz, reporter with CBS Radio, and with us now. Christopher, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Well, tired of uh, reporting on these events. Man, um, w- what can you tell us? Do we Have we learned anything more uh, from what happened on that day? Well, this was apparently long planned. Uh, I don't know if uh, the uh, the alleged shooter is sane or insane. There was certainly some planning going on. He had talked about uh, shooting others and himself when he was 17 and was uh, uh, committed to a psychiatric facility for a few days. So whatever red flags went up, they didn't go up high enough. Uh, and uh, one of the chilling things we've learned, apparently from what he published online, is that uh, a few weeks before, or a few months before, he was in that uh, in that supermarket. A security guard thought uh, he was scoping the place out, and essentially kicked him out of the of the place. Hmm. Uh, one of the things that we've learned is that uh, the security guard uh, who fired at him was a retired Buffalo police officer. He was killed. Uh, and and may have saved countless lives. And what I have noticed uh, after, unfortunately, years and years and years of reporting on these types of events, it is always somebody who steps up, generally dies in the process, but is heroic in their defense of other human beings, many of whom are complete strangers to them. And it seemed like a, a lot of older people were shot. Right. Uh, I think it was maybe a Saturday afternoon, and or, or maybe the um, the shooter targeted them, uh, and and maybe that was it. One uh, I, I read about a 53 year old man who'd started a second family, and he had a three year old son, and was there to to buy him some uh, some birthday supplies and a birthday cake. To me, it's it's the utter randomness and 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 terror of it here in the United States. It doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing, what time of day or night. No place is safe. Uh, you know, you, you do you live your your head with uh, your life with your head on a, on a swivel, uh, looking around, wondering if this is the day you're going to die from some random uh, person deciding to to shoot you. And we understand the shooter traveled quite a distance to to go to this supermarket. From hundreds of miles away, apparently had done some demographic uh, research uh, and uh, uh, wanted to target uh, people of color. And, you know, there's great controversy here with, within the United States in general and in the District of Columbia in particular about this great replacement theory. And apparently that was part of his issue, that he felt that uh, whites were being replaced by people of color and they should not be, and that this is a white uh, country. And so that it is, it's that type of, of, of thinking uh, that will get people screwed up 
uh, and think that that all of a sudden non-whites are your enemy. Uh, and I will say, it's you know, I, I'm 63 now, and I've traveled throughout the country and throughout the world. And one of the things that you would see in other places that you wouldn't see in the United States is armed guards at, at, at banks and at supermarkets. Mm. And I, I, I and the past few years, it's just always so surprising here in the U.S. to see armed guards in those places nowadays. It's just one of the things that our society has become. And even then, you're not completely protected because if somebody comes in wearing body armor and has, uh, you know, a high-capacity magazine and a rifle, uh, that person is going to do some damage. What do we know about his past, the shooter's past, and his affiliation with groups like this? Is there any information there yet? He claims that he did it individually, that he was not affiliated, that he was radicalized by some of these, uh, you know, uh, comment websites, uh, 4chan and 8chan online, and uh, that it happened during the pandemic. I think he wanted it, uh, if if indeed this online posting is him, he wanted to claim all of the the so-called glory and responsibility for himself. Uh, These types of lone wolf attacks are almost impossible to... uh, you know, to defend against. And and again, you know, like, like I say, they were armed guards who fired at, the, at this person, and still they weren't able to, uh, you know, still weren't able to, uh, to to take care of this this person. Where does this go from here? What's the next stages in this investigation? Well, you know, they'll, they'll determine whether the online uh, uh, posting is his, and then he'll, uh, you know, be tried. If indeed this is the person, this is an allegation. If this person is is, is tried and convicted, will go away. And and I must tell you, the thing that I'm going to tell you now, which is probably the saddest thing, is that we'll forget about this. Hmm. It may be six months, it may be a year, but we'll forget about this because we, as reporters and we as a nation, will have other mass shootings to cover. This will be something that the the people who, the families of those who died remember all their lives, but we as a nation and we as a, as a news media will go on without another thought, uh, other than, you know, talking as politicians do of thoughts and prayers. I've been asked a number of times if anything will happen in Washington. Nothing will happen. No laws will be changed as a result of this. Uh, it's just another uh, mass shooting that is to be tallied uh, in our history, and, and nothing will change. Christopher Cruz with us, reporter with CBS Radio, talking about the shooting in Buffalo, New York, at the grocery store uh, over this uh, past weekend. Christopher, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We certainly know of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, uh, 81 days into this, we are. Remember when uh, Putin said this would be over in a few days? Uh, Clearly not the case, but uh, obviously... Uh, sanctions and such, lots of uh, economic fallout to all of this. Now McDonald's, and we had heard that they had closed the restaurants, but still I think we're paying their employees. Um, now planning to get out of Russia, selling its restaurants and uh, and getting out of Dodge. Uh, that includes like 800 restaurants and about 62,000 employees. Uh, it's up for sale. What does that look like? Let's bring in Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author, uh, retail before, during, and after COVID-19. He is with us now. Bruce, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me on the program. How surprised are you at this, Bruce? I'm actually quite surprised because this is a big sort of final move. You know, I certainly understood um, the number of Western brands that paused or temporarily suspended business in Russia for the obvious reasons, but this is a major difference. This is something 
you know, McDonald's was one of the first Western brands to get into Russia about 30 years ago. And uh, this sends a really strong signal. And you, you might see some other Western brands sort of follow suit. And I remember, you know, it was like 32 years ago that they went to Moscow, and it was a huge deal. This was a great piece of a big piece of Americana that was coming there, uh, and, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, represents capitalism and such. There, This was a huge deal when it first happened. It really was. I mean, you know, there's lots of videos, lots of news coverage on this. You know, they went on just before the Soviet Union fell, and this sort of mm-hmm. represented, you know, personified a new relationship between the West and Russia. And, uh, you know, there was a three-hour lineup to get in the first day and everything. So this, uh, you know, tides have turned significantly here. So what does this mean for the restaurant? Because they said they were going to sell it, but they're removing all of their branding. So what will, the, what will the new version of this look like? Do we know? Yeah, well, I'm not really sure. I mean, you could, one could imagine that, you know, you could take a McDonald's, take off all the arches, take off all the colors and the branding and the signage and the logos, and they're probably going to sell it as is, you know. So maybe someone will pick it up and uh, run local restaurants where they make, you know, hamburgers, fries, whatever, but they can't use the McDonald's trademarks and trade dress. So it'll kind of be like McDonald's without the McDonald's. Will you still be able to go in there and get something sort of like a Big Mac, but not a Big Mac? (laughs) (laughs) It's a great question. I mean, you probably will. You'll probably get something that looks and tastes and feels like a Big Mac, but it's not called a Big Mac. So what does this mean for McDonald's, the business? I mean, what does this do to shares? Well, it's about a nine, I mean, about 9% of McDonald's revenue is from Russia. And, uh, you know, I'm assuming, I haven't seen the stock market since this happened, but I'm assuming there's, there's going to be some negativity on the share because, um, you know, 9% is a big chunk of change. You know, they, they value shares based on free cash flow and valuation like that. And uh, this is going to put a dent in their free cash flow. Obviously, recently there was there was limited free cash flow. They're also going to take a write-off of about 1.5 billion U.S., which is a big chunk of change. So I think they're going to take some short-term pain, but they must see a very darker side here if they stay. They must be looking at this and saying, you know, there's an even worse scenario for us if we hang on to this business. So uh, who will they, they say they're going to sell it to somebody locally. Uh, we all know that obviously Russia is having its own issues trying to pay for everything that they're doing with, with their war and such. Uh, is there a buyer waiting for this? I don't know. I'm not aware of that. You know, they could have a buyer. They could have, um, um, you know, different franchise uh, owners who want to take it private. I'm not really sure. I know that there was another deal recently where the Russian government took over another brand. Uh, I forget which brand it was, but there was a brand. It was Renault, I think, Renault Cars. Oh, right, yeah. They actually uh, sold off some of it, and then they divested some of it, and the rest they just gave it to Moscow. So now, you know, Russia has uh, nationalized this business, and that's the fear is that the Russian government is going to sort of take over some of the assets of the Western companies. And maybe McDonald's feels that's better, to sell it while they can before Moscow says, "Hey, guess what? That's all mine now. See you later. You don't get a penny." So would it be, be going McDonald's? Would it go for a bargain basement price now? Yeah, definitely, definitely would go for a bargain basement price. They're going to try to get whatever they can on it. You know, you look the book value of the assets. The, you know, if they have any land there, you look at the equipment, stuff like that, the furniture. You know, it's going to be something like that. What about other companies? Does this uh, is anybody going to this extent pulling everything out? No, the only one I've heard of is Renault, like I mentioned. But you know what? This could be sort of a precursor for more because, let's face it, McDonald's is a pretty smart company. 
And uh, if they see the writing on the wall, they may know things we don't. They may hear rumblings about the government taking over pri- private business from, Nash- from Western companies. So you might see a few other companies. There's also a social pressure now because McDonald's has set the bar now and people are going to say, wow, McDonald's is really good. Look, they're not tolerating what's happening over there. So they're pulling out what a great company. And now you may see some pressure from investors or from consumers for other brands to do the same. Uh, obviously, McDonald's going to lose a lot uh, financially in this. What about, you talked about the brand. What about uh, the promotion side of this, the PR side of this? Is this, does, is this good business for them? Well, I think it's going to help the PR side because it sends a message that McDonald's is not, does not want to be a part of a regime that you know, the world perceives, perceives as very negative right now based on you know, the alleged war crimes in Ukraine, right? So they're sort of severing ties with uh, what the world would see as a bad actor. So this will, go, this will play well for them from a PR standpoint. Much like with China, I mean, years ago, as you said, with the dismantling of the Soviet Union, this was the golden goose. This was opportunity, uh, and now we're seeing McDonald's pull out of Russia. Uh, but is it, we, could we see something similar happen with China, and people question that? Yeah, that could happen. I mean, um, you know, we're not there yet, but it could happen conceivably. Um, you know, the, the, the difference is that Russia isn't nearly as big a market as China is, yeah. and China's going to continue growing. So it would be really, really tough financially for companies from the West to pull out of China because the, the, the loss they would take would be absolutely massive, not just in their current infrastructure, but more in their future lost sales and cash flow that they would get from, you know, the future sort of largest economy in the world. Did Russian, uh, do Russians or did Russians love McDonald's? I mean, they seem to be flocking there. What are they going to say when, hey, it's different now? Yeah, I, I think that's it. I mean, I think Russians did like McDonald's. They embraced it. I'm not sure how they were doing recently, but, you know, certainly they were. And now, you know, I think this is going to be probably a common issue for a number of folks in Russia is to say, okay, what's happening with all these brands? How do we feel about this? Is there sub- substitutes? Um, etc. But, you know, you know, even this may sound crazy, but, you know, even if McDonald's takes away all of their trademarks and things, there's nothing really stopping the people in Russia to keep using them. Because yeah. the only recourse is McDonald's suing, and that's only as good as if the courts enforce it in Russia. And the courts might not enforce it, so you may see people going on to use the trademarks and, and all the uh, menus and everything still. It's going to be fascinating to see how they spin that in Russian media and how they explain, because obviously it's had quite a footprint there. It's, it's been quite a large company there. It's going to be interesting to see how Russia explains them leaving. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating to watch, you know, how it's explained and whether they kind of pin it on McDonald's being a traitor or something or leaving them in a time of need, not supplying food for people. You know, they could mm. spin it in a way that sort of makes McDonald's look like the bad guy. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19, McDonald's pulling out of Russia. Bruce, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too, Scott. Take care. Bye-bye now. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You know, I find this absolutely, uh, well, it's... If it wasn't so disgusting, uh, it would be hilarious. 
uh, because for the last 20, 30 years, Ontario doesn't build anything. And I've said to you before, I remember McGinty very vividly saying, we're not interested in building any more roads. Well, unfortunately, he didn't build anything. And uh, now we're talking about what we're going to build in the next 10 years, because that's what should have been built in the last 10 years or 15 years or what have you after that. What I find fascinating now is now every single political party is now promising to build 1.5 million homes over 10 years, which, uh, you know, I don't know where they were all 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, where where were they? Well, they were stopping building because that was urban sprawl and that was bad. And now we are where we are with a infrastructure deficit. Let's bring in Dr. Frank Clayton, Senior Research Fellow, Center for Urban Research and Land Development, Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Frank, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm fine, thank you. Uh, can you believe, are you surprised that we have all three major political parties now saying that they're going to build 1.5 million homes in the next 10 years? Where was this 10 uh, years ago? <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, it's an impossible target for anybody, but I think it came out of uh, um, a ta- the task force report the Conservatives had and the uh, Liberals just adopted it, <clears throat> and uh, probably the NDP did too. <clears throat> too. So, you know, uh, again, why are we having this discussion now? Because it seems, you know, we're not interested or we weren't interested in having these discussions 10 years ago. Why are we all of a sudden interested now as, uh, you know, as I guess the, well, it's it's hitting the fan per se. Well, if you go back uh, 10 years, 5, 10 years ago, <clears throat> analysts like myself, said if we don't build more housing, put more land on the market and build more housing of the type that people want, prices are going to go through the roof and affordability is going to suffer. And that's what actually has happened. So now affordability is really bad in the Toronto region and, you know, the greater Toronto region, Hamilton region. And, uh, party, you know, everybody's concerned about it. The, you know, the, the, uh, the electorates are concerned about it now. So, of course, politicians are uh, the liberals, uh, you know, they cause much of the problems. <laughs> I don't know what they're, what they're, uh, you know, they, they, they should apologize for what they've done. Uh, the conservatives are moving in the right direction. They are bringing more land on the market, uh, on greenfield lands as well as, uh, uh land in build up areas. Uh, and the NDP, uh, I'm not sure what they're trying to do because they, they're going to build it all in, in build up areas and no greenfield lands. <laughs> So have we learned anything from this? Because obviously, you know, we've been talking for the last two decades. Now the rubber's hit the road. Are we learning anything here? Well, when I read the uh, Liberals' uh, housing policies and the uh, summary of the NDP housing policies, they haven't learned a thing. Uh, they wanna, they're going to stimulate rental housing, supposedly by getting rid of vacancy decontrol and bringing back rent control on new units. <laughs> Yeah. Now, that's going to stop the supply as, as fast as any, any of new housing as fast as anything. And right now, the last year or so, uh, the supply of new rental housing has been the highest it's been like in 30 years or more uh, in, in Ontario and in the greater Toronto region. So they want to stop that. So instead of in- increasing the supply of rental housing, they want to stop the, the private sector from building more rental housing because they're not going to allow them to make a profit. How much um, of the how much of the whole urban sprawl movement is responsible for where we are with a shortage of infrastructure now? Well, it's the urban sprawl movement and the whole planning uh, infrastructure, the land use planning infrastructure, which is built, built built up over the years, and it's so sluggish. It takes so long. It's so uncertain. It's so costly that we it just it takes uh, ten years or more to get land you know land through the through the through the system often. 
And, uh, and so it, the sprawl thing is part of that because that was the growth plan the, um, of, of, you know, for the greater golden horseshoe and so on. That's the stop sprawl. So the sprawl is a, it, with the liberals, it was a big issue. The conservatives uh, with their uh, tw- uh, uh, 2020 growth plan for the greater golden horseshoe, they amended it. They, they, they have a much, much more balanced situation. They got a balance between environmental objectives and affordability for uh, ground-related housing. So they, they're, they want to allow greenfield lands to be developed, but certainly not just unbridled you know, development of greenfield lands. Fifty percent of all new housing has to be built up in the built be built in the built-up areas, which you know means apartments. So that uh, right there, we know that uh, uh, half the housing is not going to be on greenfield lands. It's going to be uh, uh, in built-up areas. So, so the uh, the sprawl thing is certainly a factor, and it's particularly in Hamilton and Halton region, it's gone it's gone to the stage of being ridiculous. Uh, about there's, there's no connection in their minds between afford housing affordability and uh, and uh, and the environmental restrictions. You know, I can't believe we're talking about rent control again, because I'm an old enough to remember this in the 70s. And I think it was the 70s when we last really saw apartments being built. So, uh, you know, the yeah. government puts in rent control. So telling owners what they can charge, therefore, they stopped building uh, apartment buildings. And then if you found one that had rent control, you usually had to pay a key fee to somebody to get into it. So, you know, and now we're complaining that we got all these condos. Well, that's a direct result of them not building a apartments anymore because it's not profitable for them that's right and it just started in the last year or two that uh rental apartments have been the performers are showing that rental apartments are starting to make more economic sense for investors Uh and uh, developers to do them uh but you're right i mean we we stopped you know in the 70s we had all kinds of rental construction we put Uh rent controls in in 75 and we never got rid of them though they've been modified over the years and everybody wonders where the new where the new rental units are uh, and why they haven't been built and why they're renting yeah, off well, somebody the, who owns NDP a condo. The, the, the NDP and the Liberals are going to solve that problem by just build, you know building and subsidizing everything. <laughs> yeah. We don't have enough money for that, so uh, I don't think they can do that. Dr. Frank Clayton with us, Senior Research Fellow, Center for Urban Research and Land Development at Toronto Metropolitan University, talking about the housing shortage and what each political party, they all want to build more houses now. It's amazing. Frank, thanks for the time. Be well. You're very welcome. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The uh, provincial leaders debate June uh, June election, June 2nd, is when we head to the polls and uh, a provincial debate tonight. Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Thanks. So, uh, Peter, I'm, uh, I, w- I was just doing a, uh, an interview earlier on on housing, and I found this fascinating. Every single, well, I'll say the, the main three, NDP, Liberals, and Conservatives, have all said they're going to build 1.5 million homes in the next 10 years. Can you believe that all three parties are in agreement on this? Because if they were or are, how did we even get to a shortage in the first place? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure at the edges you can find differences, you know, between the parties. But I think a lot of this has to do with the opposition parties not having the sort of expertise to cost their own platforms. And so, you know, they take what's announced in the budget and kind of make it their own in, in that manner. So are you surprised that the, that all three seem to be focused on housing at this point? Uh, not really. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, housing is a massive province when all is said and done. I mean, it's just... Uh, the rapid increase in prices, both for ownership, but even for rental, 
I mean, has really outstripped the capacity of people to earn to house themselves. So there's a real issue here. Um, and again, so I'm not surprised that the, there's an interest in increasing supply, but then also, uh, you know, the parties have come out with different plans in terms of, you know, dealing with questions like rent controls or protecting, uh, you know, rents at, uh, uh, you know, when, when units are vacated and, uh, you know, what to do with the landlord-tenant board. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different pieces of this puzzle that presumably, uh, you know, haven't been dealt with in a long time. We we deregulated a lot of the uh, housing sector in the late uh, 90s in terms of uh, rentals, uh, removed a lot of tenant protections. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, we haven't had a lot of, of uh, building of uh, rentals in the past quarter century. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of catching up to do in terms of a province that's kept adding people. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is a mess. So I'm not surprised that all parties have to say something about it. Whether they'll do much when they get elected is another issue because it's expensive to build housing. I mean, we have announcements of you know, billion dollars uh, investments, and it turns out that's really not that many units that you end up building uh, province-wide. Why do you think now? Because, again, everybody has said this is a problem that should have been dealt with 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, it just didn't seem to be fashionable. And yet every year we say we need more immigrants. We need more immigration because we have a, uh, a, a worker shortage. So uh, how do you now balance all of that? Well, I mean... I think why now is that we had prices that have gone up, uh, you know, uh, many multiples in the space of three or four years, right? I mean, just a Mm -hmm. kind of crazy increase, and that's kind of knocked on down the chain. Yeah, I mean, some people will make the argument that there's too many people, uh, you know, living in Ontario. I think it probably has more to do with, uh, you know, what interest rates were, uh, what incentives there were to build different kinds of housing, and just generally uh, the, you know, view of, of our Ontario provincial governments for the past 25 years that the market would look after it, uh, that there wasn't a big role for the, the government to make sure that enough things were being built, uh, you know, that again, that the supply and demand would, would would deal with it. But if we look around the world, there's not too many cases where that kind of emphasis is, has, has meant that there's enough housing, particularly for people with modest incomes. Uh, obviously, uh, Doug Ford ahead in the polls right now. It looks like it's his election to lose, and the fight might be for second and third place. How does Del Duca separate himself from, you know, being the uh, the transportation minister, economic development minister for Kathleen Wynne? Well, I mean, I think he has to actually just prove himself to be uh, the right leader for the base of the Liberal Party. I mean, if we look at, uh, you know, who Ontarians have identified as being, you know, the, the who they feel would be the best premier, right? Among men, uh, Doug Ford wins hands down. Among women, it's kind of a tie between Doug Ford and Andrea Horvath, uh, the young like Horvath, the older like Ford. Uh, Del Duca is not in that picture. And even among people who consider themselves liberals, only about two thirds of them think he would be the best premier. So I think, you know, it's less about shaking that old image as to kind of convince the base of his own party that he's the one who's going to fight for them. Uh, he hasn't been able to seal that deal. I don't think it's Kathleen Wynne that's been that issue. I, I think it's been an inability to, to connect and articulate a vision that even energizes his own base. What does Andrea Horvath have to do at this stage? Obviously, ha- has been at this for a while, and uh, now uh, official opposition. Is a win for her keeping the, that, uh, that position? Uh, at what time do, do, do the NDP decide it's time for a different direction? Well, I mean, I presume it will be after this election <laughs> they'll be making that kind of decision. I mean, I think at this stage of the campaign, 
you know, Andrea Horvath needs uh, to convince liberal supporters that uh, ultimately Stephen Del Duca isn't the leader for them, that he, he's not going to move the, the dial so that if they don't want a conservative government, they have to come to her. I mean, I think in the debate tonight, uh, you know, Horvath's challenge is that she's all, in past elections, she's been very popular. Uh, this time out, uh, her popularity is a bit lower. She's seen as too negative. And I'm sure you've seen ads of the Conservatives trying to make that case. And so her, her campaign has been very much focused on, you know, her meeting with people with coffee and, you know, seeing and talking to people and really trying to repersonalize her. And I presume in the debate tonight, her challenge is going to be, you know, to make the case for why uh, Doug Ford's government shouldn't be reelected, but in a manner that sustains, you know, this image of, of something other than angry Andrea Horvath, you know, the, the approachable Andrea Horvath, who was successful in previous campaigns. The debate's at 6.30 tonight, and you can listen to it right here on CHML. Peter Graves has been with us, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. Lots to talk about with Christian Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Uh, whether it's uh, senators calling us freeloaders or... Is that a military airplane that's surveilling the uh, Freedom Convoy? Uh, Christian Leprec is with us now. Christian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, indeed, Scott. I'm, uh, I'm doing very well uh, in Hamburg, Germany today. Wow, good for you. Uh, what's it like there? Uh, well, the weather is great and, uh, and uh, uh, doing a bit of uh, um, collaboration here with some of the German security authorities. All right. That's uh, fascinating. I'd love to hear from that uh, about that one day. All right. So um, first of all, let's start. We talked about this before about the Canadian uh, forces uh, and, and some sort of surveillance aircraft that was over the convoy. Uh, we're hearing more about that story. Uh, and now apparently it's a defense contractor. What, what do you know here? What's the update on this? Yeah, so I think this is an ongoing controversy because Canadians are rightly concerned. They're broadly concerned about government's ability to deploy considerably advanced tools of surveillance. And um, while intelligence organizations and law enforcement already have considerable accountability structures around them, uh, there's less certainty around some of the accountability for national defense, which has uh, very significant capabilities that it can deploy uh, outside of the country. But there's been longstanding controversy about the extent to which uh, these capabilities could be uh, deployed in Canada and also what authorizations are required. This goes back to 2019. There have been extensive debate around this. Um, and uh, in the end, uh, there, there remains a lack of clarity around when tools such as information operations, deception, psychological operations, um, and certain types of uh, surveillance can be deployed by the Canadian Armed Forces in Canada. And so I think it's incumbent uh, upon the Canadian Armed Forces and upon the minister, let's just say the government of the day, to ensure that it provides greater clarity because it shows again that this particular cir circumstance uh, comes with a significant reputational cost for the uh, institutional credibility and reputation of the Canadian Armed Forces and, and, and its organizational credibility when Canadians have are left in any sort of doubt about what exact activities the Canadian Armed Forces are conducting.
conducting, especially domestically, um, and uh, whether these uh, uh, activities were authorized uh, properly by the minister and by the government in place. And I think uh, it is unfortunate that we are not getting clarity from the government and that the government is still not committing to ensuring that these proper authorizations and accountabilities uh, are in place because the ambiguity around these capabilities for the Canadian Armed Forces continues to persist and has persisted since at least 2019. So did government ask for this or is it just a bad coincidence that they were doing this exercise at the time that the convoy was there? Well, if we have proper processes in place and proper authorizations, then you wouldn't have to ask me that question because the prime mm. minister could simply say um, how this transpired. So I think the what what happened here, it appears, is an unfortunate and inadvertent coincidence um, of Canadian Special uh, Operations Command using new air assets to conduct training on multiple dates, some of which coincided um, with uh, the Ottawa, the illegal Ottawa occupation. But of course, uh, it is uh, a very unfortunate coincidence, and you can see how, in the eyes of uh, some Canadians and of the opposition, um, uh, that coincidence can readily be either construed or misconstrued um, as the government conducting um, uh, and authorizing surveillance of Canadians. And I think we can't be in a position where that perception is left on um, uh, with Canadians. We need to be in a position where the government can always provide clarity as opposed to accusing the opposition of providing dis or misinformation simply because the government, A, doesn't want to come clean on what exactly transpired here, and B, doesn't want to say that it's ultimately the government's fault that it's been sitting on its hands since at least 2019 in terms of not providing proper processes for the necessary authorizations of these types of activities for domestic use. Speaking of misconstruing um, misinformation, um, Canada, uh, uh, the Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie, said that Canada wants to be the first to uh, support uh, Sweden and Finland in their joining NATO and, and wants to be the one of the first to, to give, that, give them the uh, check off that box, give them the high five per se. Yet we're not as anxious when it comes to doing what Finland and Sweden are doing, and that's ponying up the money in in two percent of their gdp will we see that because now these smaller countries are doing it uh, well i think so uh, there's of course a considerable difference if a country such as finland spends two percent of its gdp mm -hmm. uh, on the canadian on on its armed forces versus when canada one of the largest NATO economies uh, does so. Uh, so there is a difference in uh, in effect here. But I think what Senator Sullivan's comments uh, go uh, get at is the problem of Canada always. So, so when you talk about deterrence, there's three C's, as it's sometimes called. There's capabilities, commitments, and cash. And so Canada always likes to say, don't worry about the, the cash. We've got the capabilities and we're willing to make commitments. And what Senator Sullivan is calling out is, no, actually, you don't have the capabilities. And because you don't have the capabilities, you can't make commitments. So now it's, it's time to stop talking about don't look at the cash because we actually need to look at the cash because fundamentally the security situation of the world changed on February 24th. And when allies and partners came asking and looking for more from Canada, Canada not only wasn't, was unable to provide, but then the federal budget came and the Canada tried to spin 
win an $8 billion investment that it had to make anyways as some grand new investment in the Canadian Armed Forces. And I think the reason why this is a problem is the way we get things done in Washington on other things, whether you know it's trade, it's softwood, lumber, um, it's, it's, it's by American provisions, whatever it might be, it's because senators and congresswomen and men take us seriously. And so what Senator uh, Sullivan is signaling to Canada is we're not taking you seriously, which means Canada has great difficulty now getting other things done in Washington because people aren't opening the door to Canada. And that's why it's always been important for Canada to invest actively and aggressively in the Canadian Armed Forces, because it provides us leverage in Washington. And I think Senator Sullivan is simply echoing uh, in public something that uh, quite a number of uh, U.S. elected officials on both sides of the aisle have quietly been complaining about for some time. And so I think it vastly reduces Canadian sovereignty because it reduces our leverage with our most important strategic ally and partner. Christian Leprec with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. We appreciate it from Germany. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Have a great afternoon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Is there a part of the world that hasn't been hit by COVID-19 yet? Apparently, there is, but now they have been. Uh, North Korea is admitting that they're experiencing a massive outbreak of what appears to be COVID-19 for the first time uh, since the, uh, the virus was discovered. What does this mean for Korea moving forward? A month ago, they were testing missiles. Now they're testing for COVID. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor, Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Same to you, Scott. So uh, missiles last month, and now it's COVID-19 uh, just hitting them there. Um, I guess because in North Korea, you don't get around, you don't get outside the country much. Uh, how do you explain where they are right now? They have relied on a philosophy of Juche of self-reliance from the inception of this regime of the Kim dynasty. Self-reliance has been a core to their philosophy over three Kims now. The fact that sealing off the borders, which they did before for an earlier uh, Ebola and uh, bird flu and other kinds of viruses, uh, they apparently thought that would work or they apparently just didn't care. But what we do have now is an admission from the leader himself saying that we are in a crisis situation, we're facing disaster. The fact that he's announcing it and that they are trying to come to terms with it is in itself news. Uh, so they chose, um, uh, well, I guess, uh, vaccine non-existent there, or, or what is the situation with oh, the yes. vaccine? Uh, yeah. they, this is a largely unvaccinated population. It's also in a country with a very weak health system and where in the countryside there's already uh, a, a range of other human uh, issues in terms of stress. So that it's a, a kind of a perfect storm, a country that doesn't want to test, doesn't want to admit that they have the problem in the first place, that will not vaccinate its population, that will not take assistance to help look after their population. And now they are faced with uh, apparently disaster, and they are announcing it. How have they kept it out just by the fact that nobody goes in and out of North Korea? Yes, they sealed their borders, even from China, which is saying a lot. They, 
it's a hermit kingdom. Remember, there was it wasn't exactly mm-hmm. a tourist destination in any yeah. event. Although yeah. there have been international agencies go in, and it's not been totally sealed off. But since COVID hit, they have tried to seal off the country. But of course, they also are not. Um, how can we put this gently? The fact that they're just now announcing COVID doesn't mean that it hasn't been there. It means mm. that they're only now are announcing it. And that means that the severity of the crisis must be uh, really hitting home in a way that potentially is a threat to the regime itself. You talked about how they don't want to accept any help. What about from China? Will they be able to aid them in any way? Both China and South Korea, the two most obvious sources, have offered assistance. Uh, We have to assume, by the way, that Kim Jong-un and his entire uh, elite coterie have found the way to be vaccinated, although he has isolated himself, as have other world leaders. He goes for a long time without being seen. China has offered unstinting aid, aid without any uh, boundaries. But uh, so far, apparently, he's not accepted that. South Korea is using this as a potential opening, saying, you know, we we are willing to help you, and they specified all kinds of very key uh, supplies that they're willing to do. But so far, we don't even know if North Korea has accepted the letters offer in which this offer was made. The South Koreans have a new political leader, it should be pointed out. President Yoon is not the same as his predecessor. They, he was willing to move closer to the West and farther away from being nice to the North. But he's rushed under his new administration to, to offer help. So far, uh, North Korea seems to not be open to receiving help, even under UN auspices. Perhaps that will change. You said that their uh, health system is is weak. Um, are, are you concerned that this this could be quite a, a huge problem for North Korea because of all of those reasons? Yes. Uh, in the 1990s, they had a terrible famine and wouldn't accept much help. Three and a half million people estimated to have died. So there's a possibility that stubbornness will prevent them from helping their own population. We should also mention something that nobody's pointed out in a very long time, is they have an extensive gulag system, a prison system all over the country, scattered across the countryside, a couple hundred thousand people, perhaps. If COVID gets into any of those camps, it will be uh, it'll be just a, a, a real wipeout. It uh, didn't seem to stop uh, North Korea from testing missiles last month. No, that's what's interesting. They not only are testing missiles, they, three more ice, intercontinental ballistic missiles, and they really are playing with fate there. They aim them just off uh, Japan's territorial waters. Uh, their aim had better be good because they're to be in trouble there. But beyond that, there's evidence they are apparently moving toward testing another nuclear weapon. Meanwhile, they're facing this crisis at home by apparently not actually facing it until this announcement. Uh, at what point does it become uh, a, a really big problem, a world problem, or does it? It's a humanitarian problem. If any port, part of the globe has this kind of a crisis and its leadership fails to respond to it, uh, certainly at a human level, it's already a, that kind of a crisis or approaching it. But uh, since North Koreans don't travel much, the um, the, the theory that you know, what, we see, what we're seeing today is a super spreader, spreader event from when they had their military parade. But that military parade isn't, uh, you know, the glorious presentation of the leaders' powers uh, isn't also, uh, widely attended by outsiders. Uh, but the uh, 
possibility of any place on Earth becoming an incubator for future Omicron variations. And meanwhile, the humanitarian dimension, that does loom over both North Korea and the Mm. world. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, North Korea, admitting they are experiencing a massive outbreak uh, outbreak of COVID-19. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Oh, thank you. Same to you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, whether it's recorded or on email. For the last word. This is Will behind the board, and Bill sends this email. Our hearts go out to our neighbors to the south in Buffalo, New York, after that grocery store shooting. Canadians support you, and we'll be down for a visit soon. Well said. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.